Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my New York sports brother and good friend, Jeff Rothman, graduate of Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida, where Jeff earned his Bachelor of Arts in Communications. Like myself, Jeff worked in sports television, having worked at a network called Versus, which was part of NBC Sports, where he was in advertising sales for 12 years. Also like myself, Jeff today works to help others. Currently, Jeff's working at a drug and alcohol treatment center in Malibu, California, as a behavioral tech and is also studying for his counseling license. Jeff, 12 years in advertising sales is a long grind. How'd you do it? <laughs> um, you know, it, it took a lot, right? Because, you know, I think that I started out working in production, right, when I was at Versus, and I went on to switching over in the ad sales sides with other companies. And to your point, it is a long grind, right? Because a lot of it is showmanship. A lot of it is, you know, appeasing people over the years. And I think what happened for me was I love the showmanship portion. And I really enjoyed the client interaction portion, the coming up with ideas and spitballing. But, you know, for me over the years where it took its toll and why I ended up moving was because of the value of the self-value that I felt. And I didn't feel like I was helping anyone. I didn't feel good about what I was doing. I felt you know, who am I really serving? And it would be conversations like, but you're serving the company, but I didn't feel authentic to myself anymore. And that's where I ended up switching over lanes in my career. I can relate. I, I worked for Fox and Univision and affiliate sales and marketing and that sometimes I couldn't get off the road. It was such a grind and it took its toll on me. I mean, it, I didn't find out till later and we'll get into this later, but it added to my mental health issues. So, well, you started in, in sales and now you've switched gears to helping others. 
uh, at a treatment center. Can you tell us how and why you made that shift from business to wellness? Absolutely. So I would say what happened for me, Tim, was as follows. I had been part of a layoff at the uh, company I was at. I was at a well-known digital advertising company and was working on Disney. I was working on Warner Brothers. I was working on Universal. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past, you and I. And I was speaking of a friend of mine and he suggested to me, have you ever explored working in recovery? And I was Mm. like, you know, I thought about it at one point. I had friends who had done it. And he said, I think you might be good at it. Why don't you go try it out? So I've been working about a year and a half at the company I'm currently at. I'm right now, as you'd mentioned, uh, trying to switch into counseling. I'm getting my CADAC certification, which leads to being a group facilitator, group leader. And, you know, what happened was for me is that I needed to shift. I've been working so long in business where I felt like I was self-serving or I felt like I was serving reasons I didn't totally agree with and it took a toll on me. And, you know, I didn't like the whole, well, you're only as good as your last cell pal kind of (laughs) attitude. And, you know, it just, it felt like over and over again, I felt like I was being spit out. And I just didn't think I was cut out for it anymore. So I needed to change my focus on helping others with problems that I understood that I had gone through my whole life, whether it be addiction, anger, and personal recovery. Yeah. Well, now you're, you're in wellness and you have a bit of a relationship with that area personally. Can you share your story with our audience today? How did you get here? Sure. So I grew up in New York. I was a only child of two parents who were both working in the advertising space. And, you know, I think for me, what happened was, is that as a kid, I grew up with a little bit of, and I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, but there was something where I always felt abandoned and I didn't feel totally loved. Um, Part of that was my parents were so married to their careers for the first 13 years or so of my life. I felt like my grandmother who ended up passing away when I was 12 was the person I had the strongest relationship with that and the, you know, and a caretaker and my mom left her job after her mom died. And then we started to form a relationship. But my dad, you know, would bring his work home with him. And it would get physical. And it would get verbally abusive. And, you know, that was my first experience as a kid growing up with trauma. I grew up with trauma as a kid at a very young age. I was in therapy as a kid. I was one of those kids who was afraid of death. I was afraid of life. I was just afraid. I was afraid of being hurt because I'd been hurt. And I remembered that one of my first experiences as a kid was the first time I ever had somebody bully me 
I went to my dad for love and for support and he shook me and yelled at me. And I think it took its toll on me over the years. And, you know, because this is a mental health podcast, I'll talk about this. Um, I've had a lot of problems trying to love myself over the years. And I've always been seeking love and affection from other people. And sometimes I've pushed it away because of my own personal trauma and, you know, never feeling you're good enough, feeling like everybody else is successful and you're a failure and you're a screw up. And for me, that led me to drugs and alcohol for a long time. And for me, drugs and alcohol served me until it stopped serving me. And, you know, to this day, I go to therapy once a week. I do things that help my own personal mental health. And even through those lull or those down moments, I know I need to lean in and not give up because I can't give up on myself, you know, and I can't give up on the people who express their love to me. Um, it's been a long climb for me. I think I'm better than I was, but I still go through that up and down battle like we all do. And today I try to help others who feel that same way with their ups and downs. So would you say that that's what drives you in your current uh, role is relating to those who had similar backgrounds to yourself? Yes. I would say that it has been one of the going points for me or one of the jumping off points for me is that I understand people who've been through trauma and I, I have that empathy and that also that relatability, you know, because I know what it's like to try and drink yourself into oblivion or use drugs to escape. I know what it's like to have verbal abuse and physical abuse in your life. And what I try to do working at the treatment center I work at is let the clients know you are worthy, you are not alone, and you can recover. Well, you answered my next question, which is what, what is your central message there? What do you try and get across? So I don't have to ask you that, but I'll ask you what is the most challenging aspect of those experiences you have in recovery? I think that one of the most challenging experiences, Tim, is when clients aren't ready to get honest with themselves and get clean. And they are deflecting you know, it's the, it's the old joke, right? It's the art of deflection, right? So it's, I'm going to take my personal problems and I'm going to deflect it onto something else. It is that I'm fine, but this person's a complainer. I'm fine, but the chef makes a terrible chicken pot pie. I'm fine, but the facility stinks. You know, and it's, 
it's the art of deflection, the art of professional complaining, right? It's the, I think what makes it so challenging is it stops, you know, it's kind of like a friend of mine once said this to me. He was going through some stuff and he shared with another guy a bunch of things about like his own personal life. And he said, I just want to go back to the way I am. I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. And the guy finally said to him, well, my work is done here. And my friend goes, what do you mean? And he goes, you are that guy. (laughs) Officially become that a-hole that you were previously. (laughs) And, you know, I think that that's the challenging part is that sometimes people, they might have an addiction issue, but they might not be ready to really examine it and go deep. And that I think is the big challenge for anybody who works in any kind of recovery aspect or mental health or any kind of, you know, psychology aspect. Yeah. So conversely, um, where, where did you feel like you've got the most gratification for your work and, and why? You know, I would say this. I love when somebody tells me, you made a difference. And I love when somebody tells me that they're happy and that they want to change and they want to grow. I'll share this story. Um, We had a client who I bumped into about a month or so after he left. And he thanked me and gave me a big hug. And he told me he was doing really well. I then found out recently that that same client is still sober and that he is now helping manage a sober living. And this was a guy who came in and I'm not joking. He had a a backpack, a black eye, no clothes, and and one pill of Viagra. That's um, tough. That's tough. I mean, as we know, nobody comes in to the rooms of recovery on a winning streak. Oh, no. You know, no. it's, it's a tough thing to walk through those doors and, and admit that you need help. Yeah. Um, is there anything you can think of where in this area you would want to do, do over something that happened that you wish you had a second chance at that? You know, it's funny. I was looking at this question earlier, right? And I wrote down, I think what I'd want to do over is I would have wanted to stay in television a little bit longer on the production side, because I think I would have gone a different route. I love sports. I eventually want to go back into sports somehow. Um, what area I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm working on that. And, you know, I think that what drugs and alcohol did, and I shared this with somebody recently was it stunned me. And I think that the ambitious guy I was, and I, I'm very ambitious guy still, but I think that got delayed almost. And if I were to go back, I would have stayed at Versus a little bit longer because I loved working there. And I think that while production was not the 
path I was going to stay on, which I had originally gone into, I do think that staying within that company and the fact that they had people who were willing to mentor me, I think that that was something I didn't realize before addiction really took, took me over and won, you know? Um, but I would say this, that going forward, I just want to be able to help people, you know, and whether it's in my career life or my personal life, I just want to be able to help, help others. Well, <clears throat> I agree with you, but you know, you deal with a lot of different personalities. Some can be very difficult. Did you ever get down on yourself and feel like the work was just too challenging for you at this level? Oh yeah. Plenty of times. And I can tell you between sales and between this, there were definitely moments where I came home and I thought about, should I just end it? Should I go jump off a building somewhere? You know, um, what, what have I really done? I started questioning, you know, more so when I was in sales, I felt this way where I was like, I remember like I would come home sometimes and I'd be like, man, is this my life? You know? And by the way, I got nothing against salespeople or the profession, but you know, it just wasn't for me. And I felt like, am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Am I just going to be some pitch man that people hang up on or people tell them, I like you. I don't like the product, you know what I mean? Or what have you. And it just became really difficult for me. Um, I think the thing that I've had to learn at this job is that not everybody you meet wants to stay clean. And I shouldn't look at it as a failure, right? Because a friend of mine told me this a long time ago, and he said, Here, here's, there is no 50-50 in a relationship. Relationship works like this. You give your 100% and you ask for nothing in return. And if I, the days that I go by that, my day goes a lot smoother for me. Yep, that's one of my big issues, unrealistic expectations of others and myself. If I keep that in check, like you said, I have a good day. But, boy, if I get out of focus, it can, I can get in my head. So, you know, you're, after a day of working with these people, you're dealing with your feelings and emotions. So how, how do you deal with that? Did you ever ask for help or why or why not? You know, I have at times, and I think that it's a pride and it's an ego thing that gets in my way. And, you know, just to not to jump ahead, but, you know, you talk about masculinity, right? And I think that, you know, I'll kind of lead in with this. Or, you know, I'll wait till you ask the masculinity question, but there is no, because it does deal with this. I think that I always felt like what I was kind of told was that 
You figure it out yourself, pal, you know? And I think self-will and self-reliance is the hardest thing to ask for anybody, right? It's like, we all need help. I mean, and I'll, somebody was saying this earlier today, right? That I was talking to. He said, LeBron James, even, who's the greatest athlete in the world, he is a team of people. He doesn't just say, I'll do it myself. He has his diet person. He has his coach. He has his athletic trainer. He has a team of people around him. And as great as he is, the fact that he needs a team of people around him. I think Jeff Rothman needs a team of people around him, you know? And I, I think that like where I've gotten better at is being able to ask for help and, and you know, saying the words, I don't know, are, is sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself. Because I think that this false pride macho nonsense is where I get into trouble. If I pretend like I know everything, I'm in trouble. If I say, I don't know, I need help, please help me, or please tell me, I'm already getting rid of that pride and getting rid of that ego and getting rid of that know-it-allism and turning it over and asking, look, I don't know this. You guide me on this. Yeah, that's a central theme that I hit on quite a bit uh, quite a bit in my book and here in the podcast, as well as speaking engagements. And I didn't know, you know, I, I was leading a, a, a life of toxic masculinity until I started in recovery and did some self-discovery and was able to see my behavior in a whole different light. And that's when I realized that you know, I, I was just so so into drama and ego and not allowing myself to be human and, and to get help. And I would go I would go through the motions getting help, but I wouldn't I'd fight it. So I was just spinning my wheels, but you're absolutely right. So let's look at your nuclear family while you were growing up. Um, where did you grow up in New York? So I grew up in Manhattan. Um, I grew up in an area of the Upper East Side that, you know, it's funny, right? Like people hear the Upper East Side and they hear like, they think bougie or what have you. I grew up in the Upper East Side where it was, when it was a changeover, it was a small upper middle class area where I grew up. And then it became bougier over time after I left. Um, you know, both my parents were ad execs. My dad worked for a all-time advertising creative nut job who was a brilliant man, still is alive to this day. And my mom worked at a big ad agency as well, and she worked on uh, Advil. And it was kind of funny, right? Because I always tell this story, the uh, defined irony. Somebody who ends up with an addiction problem, one parent works on Advil, and the other parent works on Seagram's. <laughs> That's hysterical. So, you know, I grew up in this, it was kind of a bizarre household because I was felt like kind of thrown in. I was this only child. 
growing up in this Manhattan apartment, you know, and I, it's something always never felt normal to me, you know, because I felt like normalcy was you had a couple siblings, you lived in the suburbs, you got in a fight with your brother or your sister over something, you know, and I felt like my childhood was kind of bizarre like that. Both my parents worked, you know, um, I had this person who was like a caretaker until certain age and you know I went to school and I took public transportation and it, it was just an interesting weird childhood that never felt normal to me and you know I grew up with a very verbally and physically abusive grandmother and then that passed on to my dad and then you know, passed on to him taking out on me. And I, you know, and I felt like there was something that just didn't feel right. I always felt like I wanted my dad's love and I felt abandoned. And then when he'd show me love, it felt weird. So that, I, I wanted to uh, circle around your, your father and how he was as a man. It sounded like, he was tough on you, but that he showed you love. Did, did he ever express any emotions or feelings and talk to you about what it is to be a man? I think he tried the best he could with the tools he had. And I think that, you know, it's a, it's a, Tough way for me to put this, right? Because my dad ended up going into therapy for it. You know, I'm not going to get into the whole thing about that. He got better over time. And he and I have a decent relationship. We have a good relationship today. The better, best it's ever been. But I think where he and I connected the most, Tim, was sports. And I think part of it was is that my dad was a jock, you know, He's a big physical guy, he's 6'4", he's, you know, 200 pounds, and he played basketball in college and was, you know, well, sorry, I had to sneeze. Um, he was a basketball player, and I think why he I connected was on the sports level because I think that, you know, I started doing – baseball and football and basketball and all these other things. And that's where he and I kind of connected with each other the most. Um, what was tough on me was he brought his work home with him. And it felt very much like the anger he wanted to take out on X person. He would take out on me and my mom. And I felt like I never had an escape from it. And the fact that his mom was also verbally abusive like that, it was like one bad generation passed down to another. And, you know, it got better. I had a therapist once jokingly say to me, it got better when you got bigger and could defend yourself. But it shouldn't have ever come to that. And I think that, you know, my growing up was tough when it came to that because I never felt totally loved. I felt like I was kind of a screw up, 
I felt like no matter what I did, I wasn't good enough. Oh, you want to go to college in California and do film? That's not what I want for you, you know, and kind of just spiraled from there. So did he ever sit you down and have that discussion about masculinity? Here, here's what a man does. Did no. he ever outline that? No. Never did. And if he tried, I don't totally remember it. Okay. So did, did, does it occur to you that, that yesterday's and today's masculinity norms and your, and your father's uh, have prevented you or delayed you in asking for help uh, because you kind of feared being labeled as not a real man or, you know, not, not tough enough, et cetera. A hundred percent. And I think that the masculinity norms that <clears throat> I saw growing up versus what I see now is night and day, you know? Um, I think that, <clears throat> sorry, clear my throat. I think that when I was growing up in the eighties as a kid, now I'm 40, it was always the previous generation, you know, they fought in WW2, they fought in, you know, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it was, Gary Cooper's a real man. Clint Eastwood's a real man. Steve McQueen's a real man, you know, et cetera. And I think a lot of what traveled over was kind of that false pride, like masculinity, that toxic masculinity, which is, you know, a man doesn't ask for help. A man, you know, fixes his own car and, you know, and shuts his mouth and takes it on the arm. And, you know, it's not like that today. I think that a lot of times we don't know the answers and we can't figure it out for ourselves, you know? And that's why people end up going to therapy like myself. That's why people end up going to various recovery programs like myself. That's why people end up you know, kind of questioning, you know, what was real when I was growing up? What was, was I, had the playbook taken away or was I never handed the playbook? And I think a lot of that is, I never felt like I fully learned from my dad other than either he was just getting bad reactions to life or I, the lesson I was supposed to learn is don't behave this way. And I think that that was what really hindered me a lot of my, you know, early adult life. Well, I, you know, I've done a lot of research on this masculinity issue and it, things have not changed that much, unfortunately. And, you know, there's 300 million people in the world who have depression and only half or 150 million of those people ask for help. And most of those are men. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's the biggest opportunity I see is, is to connect with men so that they can see how their behavior 
can change and they can ask for help. It's okay. It, you know, they won't, it doesn't matter what other people think, you know, it matters what you think and you, you have to be the best version of yourself and do whatever it takes to do that. And, uh, also it, you know, it happens in the workplace. Unfortunately, the good old boy network is alive and well. Women have a real problem, you know, getting their two cents in. And, you know, the whole world needs men and women to work together, both at home and in the workplace, to, to get optimum results. And the man has to allow the woman to have that space. And the man has to create that space for that woman to ask questions and contribute what she wants to contribute. And, and the guy shouldn't be in fear. You know, it's, it's a partnership. So, well, you mentioned abuse in your family. I was certainly abused and that, uh, that was a trigger for my depression. Um, can you describe a little bit of the abuse you had? Was it physical, mental, emotional, verbal, all the above? Oh, it was all. It was all. It was everything from verbal to physical to mental to the point where, you know, I think that a lot of times what ended up happening was is that I said to myself, like, well, I feel like I'm living life like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, you know, may as well lean into it and, uh, you know, get the giant mallet and the traps out, you know, and try to get the cat to fall for it because that that's what would happen to me. You know, it like got to the point where it was like, it went from being scary to being funny, you know, I, and sometimes I get very emotional around it. Sometimes I joke about it. Like my, is maybe part of his deflection, but, you know, I joked around with the therapist and I said how my grandmother would smack me, then it turned into a cane and then it turned into, she couldn't walk correctly. So she needed to grab things. So she had one of those grabbers and she'd grab me, yank me and whack me with the cane, you know, that type of nonsense. And he, he, he said to me, you know, like my therapist said to me once, he goes, wow, that sounds like a mean granny. And I was like, yeah. and I mean like and my dad was kind of like that I mean he got better over time but I will say that it did screw me up it really did and I think that you know where it the there was the mental abuse was the gang yelled at all the time which was a huge that's the biggest trigger for me is because I think what it did for me was it screwed up the way I took constructive criticism a lot of times because I just viewed it as personal attacks. Like you're criticizing me, you're attacking me. Not, hey, what, what if you did it, you know, this way? It was more, it felt like somebody was stabbing me in the chest. Yeah. Well, as a result of that, um, did you just... When did you display risky behavior as a child growing up? Did you start drinking at a young age or smoking pot or? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, the first time I drank, I was probably about eight or I was about eight years old. It was the first time I tried drinking. Um, you know, and then I'd have a drink here and there occasionally on holiday holidays, like Thanksgiving and stuff, Christmas, you know, et cetera. But once I went off to, once I graduated from high school, I was like 17 going into 18. That was when it came full circle for me. You know, it was, I dabble with drinking, I dabble with pot, but then it became, I became like a Petri dish of drugs, you know, and I've shared this multiple times, which was, oh, we're trying PCP now. Great. We're trying cocaine now. Great. We're trying mushrooms now. Great. Oh, Zanny bars. Great. You know, it just went further and further and further. And for me, the further I and deeper I went down that rabbit hole of pain, it went from, you know, it went from doing the pitchers of beer to shots to eventually it led me to, I thought I was drinking like an adult Tim or like a gentleman. But what I was really doing was I was having like seven scotch on the rocks and then chasing it with like 20 shots of Jameson. And it's like, that's not drinking like an adult or like a man. It's drinking like an insane person who wants to escape or kill themselves. Yeah. Well, that's one of the big findings in, in my research is that if depression or mental health issues go unchecked, then that turns into risky behavior. That turns into addiction, alcoholism, pills, um, domestic violence, rape, and maybe even suicide. I mean, kids today, suicide is a topic on the table. When, when I grew up, you know, nobody really talked about it that much. And that's one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing, because all of this stuff needs to be talked about so that people can understand where they're at and what they need to do to take the next step in their mental health and, and be that best version of themselves. So, so now you're engaged to be married. If you and your fiance decide to have children, how do you think you'd be as a father? Easy, loving, tough, abusive, yelling, screaming. What do you imagine? I would be loving. I, I would go with the loving approach because I think that I would want to do for my kid what the people I know who've helped me the most have done for me, which is just show me love. And, you know, I heard this recently, a guy say this. It was like, love everyone and just be kind to everyone. And there's enough mean people out there that they have to experience, right? If you can't get love in your home, in your place of solace, then where can you get it? So I would leave with love and kindness first. Cool. So can you tell our audience, with all your experiences, both in business and in recovery, 
what what have you learned? What's the biggest thing you've learned from all those experiences? The biggest thing that I've learned is be kind to yourself, treat others the way you want to be treated. And even if you don't get treated that way, just continue to do that and find a group of people who you can really confide in and who you feel comfortable telling everything to, no matter how embarrassing it might be, no matter how deprecating it might be. Be comfortable being you because I think that that is something that took a long, long time for me to learn because anytime I brought home any kind of that, I don't know if I got the answer I was looking for, the answer I wanted. And I think that it part of is it's part of my makeup. And I think that like move past it. It's just, find that group of people, you know, because I got to tell you something at the end of the day, you might not be able to pick your family. You might not be able to pick the environment you grew up in, but it doesn't have to be the thing that makes you the rest of your life. You can change that. That's, that's excellent. So you, you've learned that it's okay for a man to share his feelings and emotions with another man at the right time in the right place. Thus, how would you describe masculinity today? I think that my definition of what I viewed as masculinity as a kid has changed. Because I was taught, like we were talking about, it was that Clint Eastwood gruff, you know, like sort of like do it yourself, pal. Reality is, is that being a man or being masculine, you go through everything. It's just, you know, when you're sad, you cry. When you're happy, you smile. When you're angry, you're, you're angry. You know, when you don't know something, ask for help. So that way it can, you know, you can learn how to do something. That's being, because that's just life. You know, I don't know the answers to everything. I don't don't know what I'm going to eat for lunch tomorrow. And that's okay. Absolutely. Well, as you can see, Jeff's story is quite remarkable. He's a self-made man of courage, bravery, and giving to his community. A true role model for our world today. I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so that I can learn more from you so that I can help others. Thanks again, Jeff. Listeners, please look for my podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, where you get your podcasts and keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. You can contact me for speaking engagements and men's relationship coaching on my website, www.timcrass.com. And don't forget, have some fun today.